The Lord is gracious and merciful, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love. That's what we've just sung together. That is our God, the God whom we worship, who has lavished us with mercy. Not just given us a little bit, but who has lavished us with his mercy. And as we read in Ephesians 2, we will spend eternity praising God for that very thing, for his mercy. We will be, as it were, trophies for his mercy. So good morning, Four Corners. It's a blessing to be with you today. It is a joy to be back, and I want to thank Trey for preaching over the last two weeks after the birth of our baby daughter, Olivia. Uh, it uh, is just a blessing to, to have Trey on staff and the relationship that we have and being able to hear him preach and to be ministered to in that way is such a blessing, and I'm grateful for his two sermons on Hebrews 12. I also want to remind everyone about the prayer service this evening at 5 p.m. The topic this evening will be church membership. That's one of the topics. That's the topic for the, the teaching portion tonight. But it is a prayer service, so uh, there will be many things that we pray about. There will also be some updated information on gospel community groups, gathering. At least uh, we want to share with you where our mind has been on that and, and where we are. So um, please come to that. Uh, we, as elders, see a biblical basis, a strong biblical basis for pursuing a more meaningful membership. And Trey will be speaking about that tonight. Not only for those who are not yet members, we would encourage you uh, to find a place, and maybe it is Four Corners, where you can, in fact, covenant as a member. We, we hope that that's here, uh, but we would encourage you not to just hang out in the land of attending, but to become a covenant member of a local church. And so that's part of it, but also for those of us who already are members, helping us to understand what are, what are we doing? What, what's our role? How should we think about or conceptualize uh, what we are as members of a local church? So I look forward to that tonight, and Trey will be teaching on that uh, topic. If you would please go with me in your Bibles to Romans chapter 3, verses 19 to 20. We'll be taking two verses this morning. The last time we were in Romans, we looked at that powerful and penetrating accusation in chapter 3, verses 9 to 18. All people are under sin. And really, you have to come to church to hear that message, uh, or at least uh, come to God's people, church being the gathering of God's people, because this is not going to be something that you get through osmosis in the culture. You're not going to live your life walking through society, walking through the culture, and come away with an understanding of sin. Sin is by no means popular in the world. And yet everywhere in God's word, in the Bible, we find this truth, this reality, that all people are in fact under sin. That includes the Gentiles, the pagans, the non-Jews, the Greeks in Paul's day, whose sinfulness is described at the end of chapter 1. So that was uh, devoted specifically to, although I, I don't think entirely, it's, it's very general. It starts out in uh, chapter 1, verse 18, is very general in nature. But it goes to look at the pagan world, the unbelieving, non-Jewish, pagan, heathen world. And Paul, at the end of Romans 1, wants to say, look, all Gentiles under sin. And then, throughout chapter 2, in various ways, and even uh, in the background there, in, in chapter 3, as he moves in, those first eight verses, the same is true for the Jews. So chapter 1, for the Gentiles, under sin. Chapter 2, for the Jews, also under sin. Today, in verses 19 to 20, we get the conclusion to all that Paul has said from chapter 1, verse 18, to chapter 3, verse 18. 
So these verses, verses 19 and 20 of chapter 3, end a major section of the epistle to the Romans. This section that has been undoubtedly heavy for each of us. The main theme of this entire section is sin and death. Sin and condemnation. Sin and judgment. That's the message of these chapters. And as we've said many times, this is important for helping us understand how it is we get to the cross. And we'll talk about that more this morning. It is striking to me that Paul begins here and spends so much time here, and yet many Christians in many churches avoid this very place altogether. So Paul accentuates it makes it primary in his preaching message, and yet many in our world have no use for it all together. This is sad. This is sad. In verses 19 and 20, we get this conclusion, and the title for this conclusion, the title for this sermon, for our treatment of these two verses, is All Under Condemnation. So last time, a few weeks ago, it was all under sin. Now we see all under condemnation, the result of sin. So if you would please stand with me for the reading of God's word. And what I'm going to do so that we get the logic, the flow here, is I'm going to read all of verses 9 through 20. 9 to 20. This is God's word. It is perfect. And profitable. By the way, let me just say a quick thing. If you, got, if you have questions about the reliability of Scripture, the veracity of Scripture, uh, certain passages you've read or you've heard there are contradictions in the Bible, contradictions between the Gospels and so on and so forth. Let me just say this to you. Here's what I would like to ask you. How many books and articles have you read on that topic? Because it is so frequent that people will come forward and say, here are all the problems with the Bible. And they use these vague blanket statements about the Bible is filled with errors and contradictions and so forth. There has been so many books written on all of these passages and on the scriptures reliability as a whole. And so if you have questions about that, please come and see us as elders. We would love to recommend some things that you can read to further explore. But don't be satisfied with blanket, vague responses like that. This is God's perfect word. Verse 9. What then? Are we Jews any better off? No, not at all. For we have, all, for we have already charged that all, both Jews and Greeks, are under sin. As it is written, none is righteous, no, not one. No one understands. No one seeks for God. All have turned aside. Together they have become worthless. No one does good, not even one. Their throat is an open grave. They use their tongues to deceive. The venom of asps is under their lips. Their mouth is full of curses and bitterness. Their feet are swift to shed blood. In their paths are ruin and misery and the way of peace they have not known. There is no fear of God Before their eyes. Now we come to our passage for today. Now we know that whatever the law says, it speaks to those who are under the law, so that every mouth may be stopped and the whole world may be held accountable to God. For by works of the law, no human being will be justified in his sight, since through the law, comes knowledge of sin. And I just want to give you one word from verse 21, but. And that's where we're headed next week. So go ahead and be seated, and uh, let's pray to the Lord for his help. Father, thank you for this time together as Christians, as the people of Four Corners Church, this local church which you have established and you have guarded for about a decade, Lord. You've been so faithful. We praise you. 
Lord, we ask for your grace now as we come together again on the Lord's day to study your word, to worship you through study. Lord, to worship you through song and prayer and the ordinance of the Lord's Supper. Father, thank you for this time that we have with our brothers and sisters. We pray that we would use it well. And we thank you, God, that you have given us your precious word. It is perfect and profitable. And Lord, you have given it to us. We have it, uh, as Mark preached for us one time, we have it on our phone, we have it on our iPads, we have it everywhere. It's so easy to find your word. And Lord, what a blessing. How we take this for granted. And uh, Lord, would you... Would you help us not to do that? Would you help us to look into it, to meditate upon it, to study it, to know it, and to see, as John Piper describes, the peculiar glory of it as it shines forth its authenticity and its beauty, its truthfulness, its divinity, that it is from you, it's divine, it is God-breathed. God, we thank you for this time to, to meditate upon it. Would not a single one of us waste this time with other cares or other thoughts? Would we all be present here? And Lord, we, we do ask you by your spirit to settle the minds of the kids. We pray that uh, they would be settled so that uh, they are not a distraction to their parents who are listening and studying your word, but also, Lord, that they themselves would hear and come to understand the glorious gospel of Christ, that they are a sinner, that they need a redeemer. Father, we pray that we would all meditate on this this morning and that you would change us. In Jesus' name, amen. So as we look at these two verses, as we look at this conclusion to the human predicament, we get two pictures, and that's what we're going to spend our time this morning looking at, the two pictures and you'll see them up here on the screen. It's quite a vivid passage. It's very, very visual. You enter into it and you're able to see these two scenes. And the first is the scene of the defendant in the courtroom. And then as we move down into verse 20, we see the scene of the reflection in the mirror. So number one, the defendant in the courtroom. Number two, the reflection in the mirror. And by the way, let me just say this as a, a matter of listening to preaching. If as we're going through, you, you, you kind of, uh, your mind begins to, 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 to go off. I, I know I, when I go to the Shepherds Conference um, in California at uh, Grace Community Church, John MacArthur's church, there are so many sermons in a day, and they're all an hour long, and they're all by these, you know, uh, the guys who are just really digging in, getting into the text. And so the brain is just... Over, overpowered with, with all of the things coming at it. And so I would just encourage you as a practical uh, tip is as you're going through, if you start to lose your, you know, you go off, you're thinking about lunch or you're thinking about something else or your kid uh, drops something, you have to pick that up and, or whatever, just to go back to these two main points because these two main points help to govern all the little things that are going to be said and hopefully that will sort of key you back in so that you can follow the logic of the sermon which uh, I hope, will be the logic of the text. So first, the defendant in the courtroom. Look with me at verse 19. The defendant in the courtroom. Now we know that whatever the law says, it speaks to those who are under the law, so that every mouth may be stopped and the whole world may be held accountable to God. Here, Paul is referring back to what he has just quoted. He has just finished stringing together various quotes from the Old Testament. So just to review that for you, that includes Psalm 14, 1 to 3, Isaiah 53, 6, Psalm 5, 9, 140, verse 3, 10, 7, Proverbs 1, 16, Isaiah 59, 7 to 8, and Psalm 36, one, and you could probably find even allusions to other passages throughout that. So Paul has just finished stringing together quite a few Old Testament texts in verses 9 to 18. So here in verse 19, Paul uses the word 
law, not just for the law, the Pentateuch, the Torah, uh, the first five books of the Bible, but he uses the word law here for the entirety of the Old Testament, as we've just seen, all those different portions of the Old Testament. That would include the law, the prophets, and the writings, these three divisions of the Hebrew Bible or the Old Testament. All of these, the witness or the testimony of the Old Testament collectively and entirely is that all are sinners. That is the testimony of all of the Old Testament scripture. Verse 10 makes it clear. None is righteous. No, not one. Verse 12. No one does good, not even one. But who were these scriptures written to? Who were these scriptures for? Well, the most basic answer is Israel, the Jews. Just as Paul said back in verse 2, the Jews were entrusted with the oracles of God. These are the Hebrew scriptures. They are the Jewish scriptures. They are given to a people that is the descendants of Abraham, they are given to the people as a trust, entrusted to them. And here's what Paul is doing. As the Jews would have read those quotes, so go back in your mind over verses 10, the quotes begin in verse 10. <coughs> Excuse me. Go back at the beginning of verse 10 and you go all the way through verse 18. As you look at those quotations from the Old Testament, as Jews would have read through those quotes, they would have taken them to refer to the Gentiles. Oh yes, but of course, Paul, not a single one of those dirty Gentiles is righteous. Those dogs, those pigs, those nasty, uncircumcised people. Not a single one is righteous. None of them does good, Paul. None of them. As Calvin comments, for whatever was said in the law unfavorably of mankind, they usually applied to the Gentiles. That would have been the Jewish tendency. And we see that in the background as Paul opens up at the beginning of chapter 2. At the beginning of chapter 2, he opens up and he discusses this notion of judging other people for the same things you yourself do. And so we've got this really awful set of accusations at the end of chapter 1 against the Gentiles. And as you enter into chapter 2, you envision a Jewish person clapping his or her hands going, amen, amen, those Gentiles are awful. And that's why Paul in chapter 2 turns his attention to the Jewish hearer and says, but you too. But you too. And that is similar to what Paul is doing here. Here in verse 19, Paul wants to say, no, 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 no. This message of universal sinfulness is found in your scriptures, speaking to the Jew. It is found in your scriptures, and therefore it enshrines your guilt. This is not something that you can read through, and as as you're reading your scriptures, Jewish hearer, and say, yep, those Gentiles... Paul's saying, no, 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 no. It's written in your scriptures for your ears characterizing your heart. That's what's going on in verses 9 to 18. You can't apply this only to the Gentiles. Just as he said in verse 9 when he introduced those quotations, for we have already charged that all, both Jews and Greeks, are under Sin. So here we are. What is the result? What is the result of all of this? What is the result of all that Paul has said so far? What is the result for the Gentile and the Jew? Where does this leave the reader? Where does this leave all people? Look at the end of the verse. 
the very end of verse 19. So that, and notice that this is even the purpose of it, not merely the result, but it is the purpose, so that every mouth may be stopped and the whole world may be held accountable to God. Listen to the gravity of those words, that the whole world may be held accountable to God. Now we get a vivid picture here of a courtroom. That's what Paul is giving us. He's giving us a picture of a courtroom. The judge, God, is seated. The defendant, every single human being, stands under the accusations, the sin, the heinous crimes have been stated. Verses 9 to 18, and everything before that. The heinous crimes of humanity have been stated clearly and are over top of the defendant. So what is the defendant to do? We call our first witness. No! No! None of that. What can he or she say? What evidence or argument or witness can he bring forward in order to vindicate himself? The answer is absolutely nothing. His mouth, Paul says here, is stopped. For the mouths of liars will be stopped. Psalm 63, 11. All wickedness shuts its mouth. Psalm 107, 42. Anyone who claims before God that he is not a sinner is a liar. And the mouths of liars stopped. All wickedness must shut its mouth before the tribunal of this glorious God. The defense must rest. In fact, the defense is obliterated. Silence fills the room. The piercing gaze of the judge to whom he is accountable is upon him. And in this case, the judge is both the one responsible for rendering justice and, listen to this, the offended party. Consider that for a moment. The judge is not the offended party in a human courtroom. The judge is one who is rendering justice, but he's not the one who has been, uh, against whom a crime has been committed. He's there arbitrating, as it were, overseeing, and he's rendering judgment. Not so with God. He is both perfectly just, rendering justice, and he is the one whom we have offended. Now, I want you to understand this. Be very clear on this point. It's obvious, but it needs to be said in such a way that it hangs in the air. Every single one of us is that defendant. Every single one of us fits that picture. Everyone we know and love is that defendant. We are all born and grow up with this courtroom scene before us. This is reality, folks. This is truth. This is what it is to be human in our world. This is what it is when our precious little ones grow up and they begin manifesting that seed of Adam in their hearts, that selfishness, that aversion to authority, that hatred of others so that one can get ahead, him or herself. This is being in Adam and each of us each of us has hanging over him or her this courtroom scene. And so if you're here today and you're not a Christian, a true Christian, a born-again Christian, a new 
creation? Has the old passed away for you? And have, have things become new? Have you been raised from the dead? Baptism images the resurrection of a person from the dead, as it were. We are joined with Christ. We are buried with Christ in baptism and raised to newness of life. Romans 6, has that happened to you? One of the reasons that we are slow to baptize children here at Four Corners. And we recognize that may not be very popular and we would love to talk with you if you're a parent and you have issues with that. But one of the reasons we are slow to baptize children is because one of the first questions I ask any parent who comes to me is I read Romans 6, the first part of it, and I say, are you sure insofar as you can be that that has happened to your child? Have they died and been raised to newness of life. So if you're here today and you're not that, you're not that, what does your imagination tell you will happen to you when you die? What images, because you've thought about it, right? I mean, you've thought about it. You've thought about what would happen if you die. Everyone has. What does your imagination tell you will happen? What does your imagination tell you about how God sees you? You hear people say this. I hear it all the time. You've heard it. It's so cliche. God and I are good. What in the world does that mean? God and I are good. No, not so. But this, this, these imaginings of, of what it is like, how, how God sees me. I imagine he sees me this way. Or I imagine when I die, this will happen. I've seen a few Hallmark movies. I kind of get a sense. Not picking on Hallmark, but I'm just saying. <laughs> a sense for what might happen. Well, let me say this to you. Whatever it is, whatever those imaginings are, replace them with this because this is truth this is the picture of your life before a holy just god apart from christ this is it it's the courtroom stopped mouth accountable to the judge whom you've offended and who is perfectly just and must punish you forever in hell and as we'll see later in Romans, at the heart of the Christian gospel is this glorious truth that Jesus Christ has come and taken our place as this guilty and condemned defendant before the just and offended judge. Imagine it. Imagine it. Christ is the Son of God. He is God. God is three persons in one God. And God the Son offended. We've offended the triune God. God the Son sent by the Father. That he might step in the place. To, do you understand that? That he might step in the place of guilty sinners. And bear God's judgment for us. That's the Christian gospel. That's why you're here this morning. That's what you need to grapple with and deal with is that truth that Christ has come and he's taken the place of guilty defendants whose mouths are stopped and he whose mouth was silent before its shearers like a lamb led to the slaughter took your sin upon himself that you might be free before this judge. That's the gospel. That's what Christ has done. That's what we as Christians are here to celebrate about. And that's what non-Christians must understand if they are to be saved. So that's the first picture. A defendant in the courtroom. To help us understand the human condition. But now we need to look at the second picture. The reflection in the mirror. So we have the defendant in the courtroom. But now we get a different image to kind of capture the same truth. And that is the reflection in the mirror. Look at verse 20. Verse 20. For by works of the law, 
No human being will be justified in his sight, since through the law comes knowledge of sin. We've already seen what the condition is for those who are under the law. The law, and this just makes sense, right? Just think about this for a moment. The law cannot justify or declare them to be righteous because as we've just seen, the law declares the very opposite, right? I mean, what does the law declare? Paul's just said it. What does the law speak? What does the law say? It says none is righteous, no, not one. So the law actually declares that none is righteous. How is it that one could be justified by the law when the law does the very opposite? The perfect righteous law of God, his holy requirements for human living, encapsulated in the Ten Commandments, can only put us in the place of that guilty and condemned defendant we just discussed. So what comes then of our works? So let's talk about our good deeds. What comes of our good works, our works of the law, our efforts to keep God's righteous requirements? What comes of human works in general? And here it is termed works of the law. But later in chapter 4, when discussing Abraham, Paul will use the general word works. And we see this in Ephesians and Titus and 2 Timothy, that works and works of the law, works of all kinds are included because Abraham was before the law. And Paul will argue at the beginning of chapter 4 that it wasn't works that saved Abraham. Paul's answer is that our works cannot render us righteous in God's sight or before him, before his face, before his judgment seat. They cannot give us the status of being in the right. Instead, all of our works leave us in the the status of being in the wrong. There's nothing you can do that would give you status of right, righteous, just, good before the eyes of your creator. Nothing. They cannot elevate or vindicate us. There's nothing you could do that would meet God's perfect standard. God does not just balance good deeds with bad deeds. That is a very pitiful God. That is not a holy God at all. The gods of the nations is not a holy God. The gods of other religions is not a just God who just acquits and pardons at a whim or based on the good outweighing the bad. This God is so holy. He is so just and true to his glory and his righteousness that not a single sin can go unpunished. Not a single sin. You could do all the good in the world. One sin is to blaspheme the glory of this great creator God. None of your good deeds put you in the right before God. Doesn't matter what you do this afternoon. Doesn't matter how nice you are to your neighbor, how you raise your children, or the ways you sacrifice for your spouse or what line of work you're in and how you might even sacrifice your life for the good of others, none of those things wins you right status before this holy God. When it comes to all human works, to all our supposed good deeds, the courtroom scene stands. It's unshaken. It's as though a defendant there with mouth stopped, held accountable to the judge, under his piercing gaze, begins to try within himself to call forward witnesses and bring forward evidence. But it is, it, it's just, it's vapor. It's nothing. He can't even bring himself to, to bring it forward. In fact, I think it suggests for us that when we stand before God, you know, people talk like we stand before God, people are going to be saying, but I did this, but I did this, but I did this, and I did all these things. And we do have Jesus in the Sermon on the Mount. But Lord, Lord, I did all of these things in your name. And Jesus will say, depart from me. Yes. But at the end of the day, the sinner will know God is just. 
and the sinner's mouth will be stopped. The courtroom scene stands. The Jews thought that in the law they had salvation. But Paul ends here by explaining the role of the law. As we finish in verse 20, and you probably have heard this before, the role of the law. What does the law do? Part of that answer, a big part of that answer is the law is a mirror. It is a mirror. Look at the end of the verse. Since through the law comes knowledge of sin. Let me read that again. Since through the law comes knowledge of sin. So we've seen the defendant in the courtroom, now the reflection in the mirror. Question 15 of the New City Catechism, I think captures this well. This was one of the first songs that, that we sang together as a family. So this one, of all the catechism questions, and I'm thankful for God's providence uh, in that, of all the catechism questions, this is the one that our family remembers the most because we just sang this song so many times. But it's since no one can keep the law, what is its purpose? I'm not going to sing it. But I'll give you the answer. That we may know the holy nature of God and the sinful nature of our hearts and thus our need of a Savior. I just love that question. Because that's it. And that's exact. And by the way, the scripture given in the New City Catechism for this question is Romans 3.20. Because that's what we find here. We find this truth biblically. The law functions as a perfect mirror. Now, we all look in mirrors that are more or less distorted. Sometimes we wish that we could say that it were more distorted. But the law is not that at all. The law is a perfect mirror, a perfect mirror without distortions. We look at it and get the truest possible reflection of ourselves. It it penetrates to every single detail. It, It gives us the actual image of me. And what we see, oh, what we see is grotesque. It is grotesque. It is horrible. It is vile, rebellious, selfish, idolatrous. This is the reality. This is what the Bible, this is what God's word speaks back to us. No wonder People don't want anything to do with the Bible. No wonder churches that that want to fill the the seats with people, with seekers, don't want to give them the Bible because this is what the Bible does. It is by its nature offensive because when you stand before it, this is what you see. This is what you see. All of these things and all that we've read so far in Romans 1 to 3 and how awful it has been, the descriptions of sin. As John Chrysostom, one of the early church fathers, commented, it solemnly parades forth your sins before you. That's what the Bible does. That's what the law does. And all of this painful reflecting And all of this painful looking has one, hear this, one great purpose. One great purpose. To drive us to the Savior. In whom we are made right with God. Isn't that amazing? That's what Christians have to share is that we can be made right with God. This horrific picture that that looks back at us, this, this awful image that we see when we look in the mirror of God's word, this very true image, this condemnation that we have before God and that we experience in our very own consciences can be remade. We can be redeemed. We can be saved from all of this eternally through the Savior, Jesus Christ. We can be made right with God. Let me give you a quote from Martin Luther, the Protestant reformer. He said this, 
The principal point of the law is to make men not better but worse. That is to say, it shows unto them their sin. That by the knowledge thereof, they may be humbled, terrified, bruised, and broken. And by this means may be driven to seek grace. And so come to that blessed seed, Christ. The law, reading God's word, drives us to Christ. What a precious, precious thing it is as we flip through its pages, as we see the holiness of Leviticus, as we see the awful nature of sin in Judges, as we read about the idolatry of the people in the prophets, and as we read Proverbs and reflect on all the ways we don't measure up to perfect wisdom, all of it driving us wretched sinners to Christ, the Savior of sinners, the great physician, the one who loves sinners like us. The good news is not that we can do better. If you're here today and you've got this resolve that you can do better, that's no good news at all. Because Tomorrow or the next day, you'll just flop again. That's what we do. We may manage to, to hold on to one resolution every once in a while and make a change. Lose some weight. Uh, be a better husband or wife. Whatever. But the truth is that becoming a better person is no good news at all. It's not that everything is going to be okay. Because apart from Christ, it most certainly is not. There is nothing that you could die of in this world that's worse than hell. And it's forever. It's not going to be okay. It's not going to be okay apart from Christ. The good news is that there is a Savior who took our grotesqueness upon himself so that we could be free from it. And praise God. As we worship him this morning together, we are praising him for the very fact that in eternity we will be images of Christ, perfectly conformed to his righteousness, free from all sin, eternally with our mouths and our character and our behavior, giving glory to our perfect God in sinless perfection. That's what we're headed towards, Christians, on this pilgrimage of life. Praise God for that. That is our story. I want you to listen to these beautiful gospel words from Paul's epistles elsewhere. So first, 2 Corinthians 5, 21. 2 Corinthians 5, 21. For our sake, he made him, this is God the Father, made Christ the Son, made him to be sin, who knew no sin, so that in him, We might become the righteousness of God. That's what Christ did. He became sin for us. Colossians 2 verses 13 to 14. And you who were dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh, God made alive together with him, having forgiven us all our trespasses. If you're a Christian, all your sins have been forgiven. All of them. All of them. Having forgiven us all of our trespasses by canceling the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands. Oh, that record of debt, which puts us into debt under God's judgment. This he set aside, nailing it to the cross. Where's your sin on the cross if you're a Christian? Where is your sin? God nailed it into the hands and feet of our Lord. That's where your sin is. But if you're not a Christian, your sin is nailed to yourself. It is on you. So I want to end this morning with a few final implications for us as Christians. Just a few things to consider as we close. The first is this. This is the work of the law even after we become Christians. 
Now, the law becomes for us something that we do from the heart. And the law encourages us in the path of the Christian life. So the Christian's response to the law is fundamentally different from the unbeliever's response to the law. Nonetheless, this primary role of the law still stands. It shows us our sin and drives us to Christ. This is one of the reasons why you should not just read the New Testament. This is one of the reasons why when you read the Bible, you should be, as Trey mentioned two weeks ago, you should be looking to Christ as you read through the law, as you consider what God's requirements are. You're beginning to see your heart moving in that direction, your life moving in that direction, but you still see your imperfection. You see that you don't measure up, that you're not living that life. You're not God's perfect law, and you are far apart. And so we fall on Christ. We look to Christ as the one who saves us from the condemnation of the law, and we look to Christ as the one who helps us to fulfill the law from the heart. We look to Christ. And let me say this also, God's word will expose the deepest of sins to your eyes and point you to Christ. So if you're wondering, you know, maybe you just feel dry in the spiritual life. You, You know, you just don't feel very strong right now as a Christian. Let me say this frankly. One of the things you need to do is see your sin. One of the things you need to do is deal with your sin. Because in doing that, the Christian's natural move is to run to Christ. And you will not see your sin for what it really is unless you read the Bible. Once again, a Christian life without the Bible is a dried up, fruitless entity. The Bible is our lifeblood. And one of the ways it is our lifeblood is that it pumps the blood and life of recognition of sin that we might run to Christ. Every time we see God's requirements, we run to Christ. Let me also say this about our homes, about parenting. Let the law have its work at home. What I mean by that is, let the law have its work in the lives of our children. Putting God's law before them. And helping them to see their rebellion against it drives them to Christ. Listen, permissive parenting sabotages God's work of the law unto Christ in the lives of your kids. When you are a permissive parent because you think that's gracious, and I think, in fact, that a lot of what we've, a lot of, not a lot of necessarily of what has been written, but a lot of the common conversation seems to equate gracious parenting with permissive parenting. And I remember listening to a talk by Paul Tripp, who has written a lot on, on parenting, who's said a lot on parenting. And one of the things that he brings up is that gr- parenting with grace is not permissive parenting. When we don't hold our children responsible, when we don't put before them Ephesians 6, 1 to 3, children, obey your parents in the Lord, for this is right. Honor your father and your mother, for this is the first commandment with a promise that it may go well with you and that you may live long in the land. When we don't put that before the faces and hearts of our kids and hold them accountable when they don't do that, then we sabotage the work of the law in their hearts to drive them to the Redeemer. Because it's in our disciplining of them that we say to them, look, you need a redeemer, son, daughter. This is sin in your heart. That's what's happening. It's sin. And it should tell them, look, you need a redeemer. There are consequences for sin. And the ultimate is hell. Turn to Christ. Let the law have its work in the lives of your kids. Finally, I want to give a little quote here from John Stott. I love it. It's just so clear. And it was the last sentence of his commentary treatment of these verses. He says, regarding the world around us, the unsaved people we know. He says, their mouth is closed in guilt. Based on what we've just seen. Their mouth is closed in guilt. 
Let our mouth be opened in testimony. We have the message by which our friends and family, by which their guilt before God and their grotesqueness before the law can be removed. So let's bear witness to this gospel that their mouths may likewise declare the excellencies of the Lord. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for being truthful with us, Lord, in your word. We thank you for how you show us our sin. Oh, Lord, what a grace. What a blessing. What a blessing to be confronted with my sin. Lord, we thank you that you don't just confront us with it to pound on us, but Lord, you confront us with it that we might take hold of the remedy, Christ. We thank you, Father, that Christ is the perfect Savior. It's inconceivable, Father, that he was perfectly sinless. Inconceivable to the mind. We don't, we don't have any idea what it looks like, Lord, to be perfectly sinless in our own experience. We, our heart is a web of craziness and selfishness and pride and sin. Lord, we, we are so needy. And yet Christ was none of those things. He was immaculate, perfect in every way. He is the perfect sacrifice. And Father, we praise you that we have him covering us as Christians. And Lord, I pray for, for, for the folks who are gathered here this morning, Lord. I imagine some aren't Christians. Maybe, maybe they, they, they thought so, they're not. Lord, just please show them the truth. Please show them the truth. God, and would they run to Christ? Would they not spend their time trying to justify their sin or trying to, to find a, a way to get away from this message, but Lord, would instead they confront it head on and would they run to Christ truly in repentance and faith? God, be merciful to us here today, we ask. We thank you for your word in Jesus' name. Amen.